I don't know if I've ever held a stock down basically 90% or whatever it went down. I, th I know I've done 70, but that's impressive on your... It's either impressive or stupid. I'm not sure which one. Maybe impressively stupid. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Dougals, is this the part of the show where we uh, say hi to each other and everyone is just riveted with the you used intrigue? To be, you used to be so good at just like being a friend. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I felt like... I felt like I'd come on and this started with the theme song from the Golden Girls. You know, like that, that's oh. what I hear. But now you don't even know, you don't understand a salutation. I don't know what happened to you. That, uh, that really means a lot to me. Now that I can hear what the Golden Girls to you? Thing, that <laughs> I, I used to be good at this. And so I can, uh, I can, I have a desire to be better. Okay. Uh, this that's is good. really good. Diggles, how was step, your week? Step, num step number one is admitting you have a problem. So that's, yeah. That's and I, I didn't realize it until Golden Girls was mentioned. No. That's really what you do for me. Love it. It was a good week. I'm feeling, I'm feeling solid. I'm feeling on solid ground. And you know, honestly, I would say, and maybe this is just a story I'm telling myself, but I will say the fact that like Tall has effectively been obliterated and has yeah. nothing but upside has given me some good mental space. Because I'm not, I'm not watching this like asteroid heading toward my portfolio Earth anymore. It's just a, it skimmed the side, and I'm, I'm good. Let's reset on that. I, I do want to make sure we say our pleasantries to each other. But Tall Education Group, if you haven't, if you've missed the show recently, it was one of Dougal's favorite stocks for a long time. I mean, years, right, Dougal's? And it's an education for profit out of China and was doing crazy business, had grown from, gosh, 10, 20 to 90 in the past two years or something like that. Do it, check me on these numbers. Yeah, past few years, but yeah. It, it peaked at $90 a share and then just got destroyed by Chinese government threat of regulation turning after school education into nonprofits, right? Uh, went all the way down to like four bucks a share. So that's a little background. The crazy thing, and I don't know if we'll do this today, Doogles, or down the road, but this is the first stock in the last five years that we both um, hold at the same time. <laughs> because Dougal's as a momentum style investor, long long trend, uh, not your average momentum investor, uh, solid fundamentals as me as a deep value investor. Typically, those don't cross paths well, and in this case, it did. So I I just one thank you for the recommendation because I think I'm going to make money on it, and two sorry that it went from ninety to four because that wasn't your fault, but three no, it wasn't. It's fun to be like uh, equity brothers with you. I, I yeah. just, I really feel akin. Let's revel in this time because <laughs> I think, I think there have been some threats before. Like even when we were talking about a uh, dollar general, like that could have been one at some point. Although oh, yeah. I, I hold, I hold that in the non momentum portfolio, but, but still, yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. And it's a, it's kind of, it's a, it's just interesting psychology. I think with this here, because from earlier in the year, China has been saying something's coming this year, something's coming this year, and it was hitting the stock. And then the fact that it finally just came, it didn't feel good in the moment, but like now it's just done. I feel better. Yeah. But it well, the psychologically, like I think this is an important learning. And I, I'm so impressed 
I don't know if I've ever held a stock down basically 90% or whatever it went down. I, th- I know I've done 70, but that's impressive on your, it's either impressive or stupid. I'm not sure which one. Maybe impressively stupid. <laughs> this anyway. is where we need, this is where the show needs to be on YouTube because your facial expressions right now are telling a whole story. <laughs> I, d- I really didn't mean to start the show with this. Um, <laughs> well, how, how about then we start with this? I'm going to, I'm going to drop it in the fishbowl for a for a quick hit. Speaking of watching things go down, there's an ETF that's coming out soon. Not out yet, but filed. And it's SARK is going to be the ticker. And if you look in that SARK, those last three letters is ARK. This is an inverse ETF, an inverse ETF that is targeting a specific individual's portfolio, which I have not seen before. Specifically, it's looking at ARC, which Kathy Wood runs, which has been really hot last year. I think it was like 149%, one of the best performing ETFs last year. Kathy Wood, I'll say deservedly, given its great performance, has like gotten a lot of um, praise and a lot of following and, and all that. And I think that her portfolio is yellow trip to nonsense. And so it's fascinating to me that someone is coming out with an anti-ARC ETF. This is what this is what this the uh, the manager said. So Matt Tuttle is the CEO of Tuttle Capital Management, who's going to manage Sark. And he said the creation of the fund is about providing a tool investors want, and that he's actually an admirer of Ark and of Wood. Wait, wait, <laughs> he, like an admirer of her social media strategy or something? Because he's clearly trying to bet against all of her stock picks but hedging very poorly socially and saying like, this is, this is not about you. It's not, it's not about you. Of course it's so about do, you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's definitely about her. Douglas, you know, I think shorting stocks is stupid. I don't think people should do it. Yeah, that's too broad of a statement for, for the large majority of people. Um, but I'm, I'm going to buy this. I shouldn't buy this. I'm going to buy, it might be like, three dollars worth or it might be like a hundred dollars worth or it might be like a thousand dollars worth but i'm gonna buy this because i love the idea it's hilarious this is so hilarious i love the ticker that's start that sark (laughs) like sark (laughs) is just a great ticker and i love that it's a bunch of high-flying stocks with what i think are two optimistic bets for their future growth and then someone's gonna bet against it like i just think it's this is awesome We'll see how long this thing lasts, but agreed. It's this is fascinating. All right, what's next? A quiz for you. I saw this come on. across the Twitter, and I just just got so excited. You know, I love uh, sports, and you know, I love business. What's better than trying those two together? Forbes came out with their most valuable NFL teams. Ooh. I want you to guess at the most valuable team in terms of value. Got any ideas? It's been so long since I looked at this stuff, like probably 15 years since I looked at this stuff. But I remember back in the day, it was surprising to me because the Redskins, formerly known as the Redskins, now the Washington Washington football football team. team. Come on. That was number one back then. Is that still number one? No, but hey, don't even worry about team order. Just worry about total value at this point. Oh, okay. All right. So total value of all the teams? Uh, No, of the most valuable team. Okay. I would go 2.7 billion. Man, so that's like... That's a good guess. That's what it used to be. They're saying the Dallas Cowboys are worth six and a half billion dollars right now. Whoa. And this has changed crazy in the last. So when Steve Ballmer bought the Los Angeles Clippers in the NBA, 
everyone thought like maybe the New York Knicks were worth a billion, a billion and a half. He paid two billion effectively because he had all this Microsoft money, and he was like, "I want a team," and there's only thirty teams to buy. So they had this like closed bidding war. And he paid at least double what their true value was because it didn't really matter to him. And he got like effectively he got some tax write-offs and stuff. So I feel like that started this craziness in terms of uh, the values jumping exponentially. Uh, and then did I, did I tell you which team is number one? Sometimes yeah, called you said America's the Dallas team? Cowboys. Yeah. Uh, any guesses on like top five, top ten? The Washington uh, football team is currently ranked number five at four point two billion. I would then go uh, Packers would be up there. The Patriots would be up there. Patriots are number two. Surprisingly, pa- well, somewhat surprisingly, Packers didn't make this list. It's just because they're a small market, man. Even yeah. though they have yeah. like a national brand, they, they're not based in New York City or anything. Um, the Jets and Giants, uh, the New yeah. York teams both make this list. The Giants are Giants. three and the yeah. Jets are eight. Any other guesses? Mm. It's basically big so, matchups. So number four a... is number four what I'm going after? Bears? Yeah. Bears are seven. Four is the second largest city in America. The Rams? The Rams. Got it. And hey, the Denver Broncos made number 10 on this list. Woo! They're overachieving for market success. <laughs> <laughs> we just need a quarterback for forever. Uh, yeah, imagine if they had a quarterback. So my... My eight-year-old, he, in his lifetime, the Broncos haven't been very good. So he's always like, whenever he has a story about like someone being horrible at athletic performance, it's always like, yeah, they're like the Broncos, man. <laughs> so, that's oh man, got to turn that, got to turn that narrative around. I love it. I just think it's hilarious. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I have two fish bowls. Right? I've got the the fish bowl. It's like nice and light content and yeah. you know witty, and then I have the uh, recommendations that are not recommendations, reading recommendations. This phone falls into that. The Nerd Alert Fishbowl. There's a paper that came out uh, in July. And what it talks about is how investors are not good at selling, though they are good at buying. So I want to walk through some of the some of the hits from this and then we can we can chitter chatter about it. Now is um, this retail investors or professional investors? No, that, that that's one thing that's different here. There have been studies that have come out that have looked at retail investor trades because the the information is more prevalent. So they looked at retail, um, but this is not retail. What they looked at was the daily holdings of 783 different portfolios that are uh, institutional investors. So the the average value of the portfolio was a little under 600 million. 573 million was the average value. Um, so sure. that so it's different. The average portfolio um, of what they looked at had about five years of return data that they looked at and against daily holdings, 2.4 million buy trades, 2 million sell trades, and then they converted all market values to US dollars at the end of every day. So that's like some of the methodology. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So now let's get to the interesting stuff. So basically, what one of their big takeaways was there's clear evidence that there's, uh, there's skill when it comes to buying, but selling decisions underperform substantially. So when they looked at the methodology they used to compare was they said, if you sold, you chose to sell this stock, whatever that stock is from your portfolio. And they would say, if we at random selected a different stock in your portfolio to sell instead, like a random stock, then how, how do those two compare? What they found was on average, it was 0.8% per year 
uh, underperformance for the stock they chose to sell. Um, so I'll pause there and then because you're you're getting your skeptical skipping. Yeah, skeptic. I mean, I w- I wanna I wanna hear and learn, but I'm not sure that I like that methodology for judging if a sale is good or not. Now I I understand that it's very difficult to judge if a sale is good, but I guess the initial thoughts is. I don't necessarily care how it performed against a random stock. I care how that stock performed. Like if that stock went down, then the selling decision you could argue was correct. I'll have to go back and look to see if they took a look at that. Cause that would make sense for them to take a look at, but, it, but that, that didn't seem to be the way that they, okay. they, they tore it down here, but, but what they're, as they were kind of uh, trying to see like, what's the why behind this? One of the things they, uh, they said was the case was, that when people were looking at buying decisions, they spent a lot of time on it, right? Um, so the way they framed it was that their evidence suggests that an asymmetric allocation of cognitive resources, I don't know why people are so fancy when they write, but uh, an asymmetric allocation of cognitive resources, such as attention, can explain the discrepancy. And one thing, I, I think this is interesting, but you, you, can, you can be Skippy the Skeptic if you want. They said that when they looked at cells uh, that came on earning announcement days, that the yeah. underperformance just went away. And going based off their hypothesis that they stated, right, they think that's because from the conversations they were having with people on earnings days, the, uh, the investors would actually look at data again. Like that, they would go back and look at the fundamentals. They, they look at all that. When it wasn't earnings days, they didn't spend all that amount of time. They basically um, mostly sold the stocks that like didn't matter to them as much and so yes so it was so there was there was more like fundamental attention um, the other thing that this points out is and i think this, this is the last last data point i'll give and then i'll pause the other thing they pointed out was that the underperformance in selling appears most prominently in the fundamentals oriented managers and less so in the momentum strategies and i think when they zoomed out a bit they said quantitative strategies even more so than momentum, um, like systematic quantitative strategies yeah. underperformed less than um, the people that were active. Oh, there you go. Look at the hand raise. Oh, hallelujah. Huzzah. Yeah, underperformed less than, than those that were people that were fundamentals oriented and um, just picking based off their humanity. I mean, of course, right? Well, so I'm a quantitative value investor. Uh-huh. That is one of the reasons I'm a quantitative investor because human judgment is flawed uh, and emotional. And so if you can have a quantitative strategy that effectively takes that out of the game, I love that because it matches the hypothesis that is ideal for me, Douglas. I love that because it... <laughs> oh, man. you Your nickname should just be confirmation bias. Yeah, it should be. Uh, and like, would you just call me Skippy the Skeptic? I like that one too. <laughs> Skippy confirmation bias? Like, this is good. I uh yeah this is perfect. I I typed in Google what I wanted to hear and it returned the results that I liked and now I'm going to tell all my friends that I'm the world's best investor. My strategy is perfect. Yeah, your takeaways from this might have been a little <laughs> Yeah, I hated little, the little methodology when I wasn't sure about it and then when it confirmed my beliefs. I love this paper. It's the greatest thing ever. And I should uh I, I didn't mention the name of the paper just to give credit where credit was due. It's selling fast and buying slow. 
Heuristics and Trading Performance of Institutional Investors, National Bureau of Economic Research is where this came through and came out last month in July. Check it out if you want to check it out. 55 pages of, of pure nerd. I love it. Um, I mean, so I guess I'll go on my slight tangent. I, I think that's incredibly important. And if you're uh, investing in individual stocks, especially if you're using a non-quantitative strategy, I just say that the right approach, it's, it's hard to do, but the right approach is to determine fair value of the stock before you purchase it. That's where most people spend their attention and it looks like the professionals do too. But then you should um, revise that fair value at a time frame that you determine. Maybe that's yearly, maybe that's more frequently. And at least the value methodology would be when the stock gets to fair value, you should probably sell it. So if you want to do things by the book, there's a way to do it and a way to have more attention on the selling process and hopefully not make the errors that are so common. Going back to your your point that you raised earlier around the methodology they use to look at selling underperformance, when I started reading the paper um, in the uh, like executive summary, it mentioned that point around fundamentals-based managers like underperforming, like they mentioned at the beginning. So when I got into the paper, what I assumed was going to happen was I assumed that they were going to say that the fundamentals-based managers sold when it got to fair value, and then the stocks kind of continued to rise. And that was yeah. like that was what happened. But yeah, that that's it's not so much what uh what pointed out. But yeah, I agree. I think uh so every let me let me just check myself here. I'm pretty sure this is true. Every stock that I own, whether in my model portfolio or otherwise, I know either when, based on time frame or under what conditions, it will be sold. See, that makes you in the top 1% of um, investors in terms of methodology. I, I mean, in my opinion, so free, few people do that. And I would say that that's true for the large, large majority of my stuff. But I do have an occasional flyer on tall education group went to four bucks and I didn't do a deep value. It, it, like I didn't do a yeah, deep yeah, analysis. Yeah. I said, this is super cheap and I'm going to ride with it. Uh, that's a small uh, piece of my portfolio. But yeah. I like that. I'm All right. How'd you like it? Uh, <laughs> you're saucy today. So I know this is a podcast, and I know that uh, because it's a podcast, people might be interested in podcast listener demographics. I certainly am. Not because I have a podcast, because I find this stuff fascinating. So an article came out in Riverside FM, and you mentioned this last week, Diggles. It's like, and you should probably question some of the stats in this article because the people are trying to sell stuff. So this is like some sort of add-on to some sort of audio thing, and and they're trying to sell stuff. But okay, that enough. being said, the facts are uh, somewhat fascinating to me. So they estimate that 104 million Americans over the age of 12 listen to a podcast on a monthly basis. I, I'm not sure if I thought that would be a higher number or a lower number. Uh, but let's call it a third of the U.S. population. That's on a monthly basis. They're saying roughly a third of the population listens to the podcast. They say uh, or estimate that 55% of the U.S. population has listened to a podcast ever. Wow. So like okay. some people have probably listened to one podcast and they're never coming back. But almost half the population might not even know that a podcast app exists or how to download yeah. anything. Yeah. Uh, it's not as a as mature of a market as I thought it might be. Some some of these kinds of things do surprise me, right? Because there's there's stuff that we take for granted because of how often we do it. But I remember when uh, I read uh, Brad Stone's book 
about um, Amazon. I can't remember what it was called. But anyway, he wrote a book about Amazon like a decade ago. And in it, he was talking about how um, Bezos, when he went and like first met his father, this is after yeah. he's like Amazon's like a big thing. Like his dad had never heard of him or heard or sorry, never heard of Amazon. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right? so and like, how can you imagine someone that does? But they're right. It's it's a thing, right? People live different lives and they like the all this Internet stuff isn't important to them anyway. Yeah, it's crazy for me to think about given how much I consume. But so uh, do you think your average monthly podcaster has a full time job or not? Yes, <laughs> it's, cl it's closer than I thought. They say 51% has a full-time job. So I guess that maybe that crowd less than 18 makes up a lot of the listening mm, body. That's Actually, interesting. They, it's certainly a younger crowd. So they say 49% um, of monthly podcast listeners are between 12 and 34. And then 40% yeah. are between 35 and 54. So it, it skews younger. Okay. Um, yeah. But 17% have a household income between 100K and 150K. Seems high. reasonable. And almost 30% have a university degree. But I think about, am I remembering that right? Doesn't about 30% of the U.S. population have a college degree? It's something like that. So yeah. th maybe that doesn't really tell you anything about podcast demographics. Last things I'll hit on this. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious, but your super listeners account for a lot of the content. So like your super listeners might listen to 22 hours of podcasts a week. I uh, A week? I listen a podcast but there's no way i could even find 22 hours Wait, of consumable podcast. you say 22 hours a week or a month a week i mean of course you can't you don't have a full-time job if you listen to <laughs> yeah there we 22 go 22 hours a week man well i thought i listened to a lot of podcasts but i do not <laughs> i take that back oh my goodness i gotta um, up my game the average episode is about 30 minutes which corresponds with the average american's commute that again is like not surprising but it's kind of uh we, i know i've talked to different people about like what's your sweet spot and everyone has a different sweet spot in terms of length but seems like the average sweet spot just matches the commute which it makes sense any guesses as to why people listen to podcasts in terms of like well learning, i'll leave it i won't give you that. learning entertainment yeah 74 percent say they listen to learn oh that's actually that's a lot uh, higher than I thought it would be. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so, and then average downloads of your average podcast. You have a guess? Like number of downloads? Number of downloads for your average podcast yes. in total, or per week, or per month? What's the uh, per week? Uh, oh, I think I saw this. Uh, I think it was twenty-seven. You're right, but but that's lower than i thought and i'm gonna give my statistical rant in a second about how it shouldn't be average but uh <laughs> they say average podcast has 27 listens per episode i think listens and downloads have to be equated here because i haven't seen technology that can separate those two things but top one percent of podcasts get uh they say 3200 listeners per episode i would have thought that would be higher and yeah. then someone like uh joe rogan gets about seven million yeah. Uh, downloads wow. per episode and spotify paid him what 200 million am something i remember like that, that right? something like so that. like i would have thought that was way bigger now maybe spotify is saying the trajectory of this market is immature and developing rapidly and so that 7 million projects to 20 million in three years who knows but the, i would have thought all those numbers would be greater than they actually well, are 
looks like a hundred million dollar deal i'm just correcting uh and let me find the length to get to your stats point too um with that 27 if that's median given that you have the joe rogans in the world the median's probably 15 oh it's way less than 27 i mean divide uh 7 million by 27 and that's you're skewing yeah you're skewing a crazy amount of this with the top end um, so yes it needs to be median and don't worry i will call riverside fm's uh analytics department and give them a talking to this is skippy the skeptic <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm here to confirm some bias i have about podcast listening trends <laughs> <laughs> all right uh you ready for quiz number two? Ooh, i am i've been preparing this one's actually related to investing, which is rare for me. Hopefully, we'll get to talk about pizza later. Okay, here we go. Stock A has a P.E. ratio of 10. Stock B has a P.E. ratio of 20. If you build an equally weighted portfolio of stock A and stock B, is their P.E. ratio less than 15, exactly 15, greater than 15? So if I'm buying an equal amount of both. Yeah, so don't do then... the math. Just give me your initial. Okay. Because I can see you, you're thinking over yeah. there. Just give me yeah. your initial thought. Less than 15, equal to 15, or greater than 15? Uh, greater than 15. Oh, greater. Okay. So this came across, I want to give credit, at uh, 10K Diver on Twitter. And it's a really good, I think it's just a really good thing to think through. He had another caveat in there, which I thought made it more confusing. So I excluded for you, but maybe that made it. He also said their average P.E. ratio is 15 because he did 10 plus 20 divided by 2 equals 15. So the majority of respondents on his survey said it's exactly equal to 15. The correct answer is actually 13.33, which is less than 15. So let's do that together in our head because I I spent uh, 60 seconds going, what's actually right here? So you have 100K of stock one and 100k of stock two, you combine them equally weighted on price. This is where I think it gets interesting. When you equally weight, you equally weight on price. You don't equally weight on earnings. So you have $200,000 worth of stock. And then when you combine the earnings, the 10k and the 5k, you have $15,000 worth of earnings. And so then when you do that price, divided by those earnings, the 200 divided by the 15, you get the 13.3. But I guarantee you that most people aren't thinking about that when they say combined, you know, kind of how stocks combine. When you look at those, you pull up an ETF and look at the cumulative price to earnings or the cumulative price to keep free cash flow or whatever. So I just thought it was a, a fun thing to throw your way. Yeah, that was fun. I think my my brain because you wouldn't let me do any sort of math. <laughs> my brain, uh, and th- this is like pure bias based on my methodology, I think is, I said, I didn't even do equal weighting. I was like, I'm buying oh, yeah, more. Yeah. I was like, I'm buying more of the uh, the high PE stock. Like I like I just like went there um, for some reason, which is not what you said. Like you didn't ask me that, but I was like, I'm obviously going to hold more of the expensive thing. Yeah, but no, you nailed it. So I, I actually, that was going to be my tag on point is like, in today's market, the PE of 20 stock is the Facebook or the Google or whatever is expensive right now. And the cheap stock is tiny. So the market weighting is probably like 10 to one. And if that's the case, if the 
uh, if the price weighting is 10 to 1 with the PE of 20 stock, um, you can do the math, but you'd buy, say you buy 100K of the PE 20 stock and 10K of the uh, PE 10 stock, your combined PE ratio would be, I think it's 18.3 or something. It obviously skews towards that yeah. uh, one with the greater weight. Makes sense. And that's, yeah, that's how it works in the S&P 500 today. And that makes perfect sense as to why you're thinking that way. Yeah, it's a good little quiz for the listeners. That's fun. Look at you being fun. I there's a first time for everything, man. <laughs> um, can I reach into the the fishbowl for some what I'll call just like investment lessons? Is that cool? Please do. Yeah. All right. There's a an article blog that came out a couple weeks ago on of dollars and data. Uh, that's called "Go Big Then Stop." I'd love to talk about this because I think. I think the uh, the abstract lesson from this is so, so important. And it's it's one of those things that's obvious and we talk about it all the time. Uh, but I think that the way that they broke it down here was super powerful. Um, yeah. So the high level lesson I'm talking about is about compounding and the importance of compounding. And so the, the concept of go big, then stop. What uh, Nick, who wrote this, what he's saying is that if you say that for the first 10 years of your career, you're going to, you're going to save money, right? So that's starting early. Mm -hmm. And then someone else, your friend Bozo says that they are, sorry, was that, was that too direct? <laughs> <laughs> um, says, I'm not going to invest for the first 10 years of my career. I'm going to, I want to go to the Bahamas every year or whatever. And so they wait 10 years and then start saving for the next 30 years. If you assume that they get roughly the market return, if you assume 7% on their money, after 40 years, you, the start early person, would have more money. You'd be over a million dollars, whereas the person that started later would be a little less than a million dollars. So there, there's a, there are a lot of dependencies on here, right? 7% is important. You have to be 7% or above in order for this to be true. Mm -hmm. But the concept is just so fascinating. And so the, the go big, then stop is basically saying, even if somebody just said, all I'm going to do is for the first 10 years of my career, I'm going to invest every year and then i just don't do anything that's the go big at the beginning then stop you're going to be pretty well off right the the higher the return the later you start it gets worse and worse and worse of course because so much of your returns comes from that those early years yeah so can i be let's do sanity check i don't mean to be a little downer i completely agree with everything nick who's at of dollars and data on twitter if you don't follow him and you just said but there's two or three things that are really important that don't always happen in real life. The first thing that never happens in real life is consistent 7% returns, right? What might happen with your go big is you throw a ton of money at the stock market for 10 years, and then you live in Greece, and <laughs> the stock market loses 90% <laughs> of its value. And like, you're not necessarily better off because the in that case, this is a very extreme example. In that case, the people bought the stuff you bought for 90% cheaper 10 years later may end up better. That doesn't mean it's a good strategy. That doesn't mean you should plan on that, but just as a FYI. Other thing that he talks about, and I, I know why he did it, but I don't think this is real life. Correct me if I'm wrong here, if I'm remembering this correctly. He picks a fixed dollar amount and says you're going to invest that fixed dollar. I think it might be a thousand bucks, right? Well, how life actually works is you enter the workforce and you make 40K or 80K or whatever it is, and then your uh, salary grows over time. So most people invest a percent of their salary, 
which would mean if you start at 40k and ended at 200k you'd be investing significantly more in the latter years which might flip this equation on its head a little bit that being said point being here is just starting early is critical I, and i think everyone knows that but that doesn't mean it's easy any yeah, thoughts one, there Douglas? yeah I've, I've lots of thoughts one is on the consistency of the returns i will throw in one counter example for you which also is a different version of a go big than stop and that's bernie madoff because he went big and had very consistent returns and then stopped because he went to jail but anyway just wanted to throw that out there um to your to your last point, though, uh, one of the one of the charts that that he has in there, which is it's not directly like related to that, but it's tangentially related, is how much more you have to save for each year that you delay. Yes. And so I think to that point is if you if you say, I'm not going to put in money for a while, you have to end up putting more and more in. And so it becomes, I think, around five years, around 10 years, sorry, um, around 10 years, you have to it's double. You have to put in double the amount. So if you were going to put in $10,000 for the first 10 years, but you didn't, you'd have to start putting in 20,000 to make up for it. And so I, I say that's tangentially related because if you end up waiting to put in certain amounts until later in your career, you have to end up putting in a lot more. And so hopefully you're, you've doubled your salary you know, during, during that period of time, yeah, yeah. which may or may not be the case. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that's a good point, right? Um, life is not this simple, typically. No. There might be some people that say, yeah, I'm always going to put in this amount. The return's going to fluctuate. Your income's going to fluctuate. You might lose your job. You might get a windfall, right? There's like, there's all kinds of things that come into it. But the premise of like, just start. Oh, yeah. And when you tie it back to a windfall, like this is, uh, put invest that money as soon as possible in most cases, because like, so he has a great chart that's uh, at the end of 40 years. Again, he assumed they put in an equal investment each of the 40 years. So if you're just thinking about it, 140th is 2.5%. So you'd think like, hey, the money they put in each year is about 2.5% of the total balance, but that's not how it works at all. The money they put in at year one is like nearly 7% of the total balance because it gained interest or capital gains or compound growth, whatever. And then it got interest on top of interest on top of interest for 40 years. Whereas yep. the stuff you put in in year 39 never had the opportunity to do that. So I really like uh, the approach and think it's um, important to understand. It's just never as simple as a scenario like this. No, our listeners are smart enough to figure that out though. Exactly. That's why it's a, just look at the, the abstract concept and takeaway even more than some of the specific data just use the specific data to, to grasp the concept but the abstract concept is just start start early early money will have time to compound provided you're not in greece and all's well <laughs> yeah is that Anything it else what else have we got um the other stuff i want to i want to talk about later i think I'll, I'll drop a little bit right now but but i want to do some research here this uh this buy now pay later um, I don't know what to call it. It's oh the they're, after they're, pay and the Klarna stuff, right? Yeah, and a firm went public uh, a few months ago. So there are these companies that that have been coming out, you know, for I guess over the course of the last decade, let's call it, which are organizations that are putting some version of let's call it zero interest out there. You yeah. can pay in even installments with zero interest, and the way that they make money is not on the interest, obviously, because that's zero. 
but they make money because the the companies that they partner with to sell the goods, like Peloton and Affirm is a good example. So you can buy your Peloton for a couple thousand dollars, pay over three years, and it's zero interest. And so as a consumer, you're like, I mean, time value money, awesome. Seems like free money, yeah. right? And then Peloton will give Affirm a fee for like a finder's fee, right? So you can just think about that as like a marketing cost effectively for Peloton. And so there are a number of these companies that have been coming out. And the thing that I think is interesting, but I want to this is why I want to dive into some and research some stats to make sure that the reason I think this is interesting actually makes it interesting. Yeah. Is what does this mean for things like credit cards and personal loans? Is the is the consumer debt market actually going to start to shift toward a different product? And from what I've seen early over the last year, the answer was yes. Over the last year, there's been much more from a consumer standpoint an aversion toward credit cards and personal loans, but that's starting to flip back now. It seems like uh, credit cards are going up. And sorry, your, your, your hands are getting out there. So I know you got some, you got something, bring it. I love it. Thanks for bringing this up. So yes, I should probably ring, read the Affirm 10K and do a deep dive. Like, I think we should talk about this uh, at future episodes, but your boy, Jack Dorsey, it was so interesting with Square bought Afterpay, right? The Australian one Yep. Uh, right. for 29 billion. What he said, because he's on this kick about making the world a better place, whether he understands what what that means or not, he he said he said two things. He said one, younger generations, uh, millennials on down, are kind of afraid of credit card debt in a way that their parents weren't. Like they've seen the negative consequences of debt, and they're dealing with debt for student loans and other things. So they're much more apprehensive about credit card debt. So that ties to a point. But he also said Square is about improving. He's looking to build a holistic financial services platform that touches all aspects that doesn't include charging people 20% interest on their debt because he feels like that's a... I'm putting words in his mouth, but I think you get the point. Like he feels like that can be predatory in a way that afterpay is not necessarily predatory. So afterpay works. Go for it. Uh, I, I, this is this is why I I'm like so excited to dive into this stuff and actually look at it because I my uh, my initial uh, inclination here is to say yes, this is interesting. It seems like it could be a shift in the financial market, but it also might be jumping out of the frying pan into the fire because. It's kind of like uh, like when the when the pandemic hit last year, my wife and I, uh, she and I basically sat down and said, let's look at uh, let's look at our finances. Like I mean, we always sit down and look at our finances, but specifically, let's look at uh, some of the things that we like subscriptions that we may have just allowed to continue, right over time because we want to cut down this year because who the heck knows what's about to happen, right? So we just yeah. wanted to go into that mode. So there are all these like like what the heck is Apple charging us four dollars a month six times for? <laughs> it's like all this random <laughs> stuff like we were finding, right? It's like, oh, I signed up for that. And I think that there's there's one world in which you can say using a credit card, yes, they charge you whatever, 20% or so for that. But another world in which you can say, oh, it's all free. And I think we're we're getting closer into this world where you go, oh, it's basically free. Like because there's no interest, it's free. Robinhood, right? It's free. And yeah. then you end up having, you've got your your Peloton payment and this payment and that payment. And now you've stacked up all these quote unquote free, all this free money. And I think yeah. that's just a different it's a hidden cost potentially versus everyone knows about the 20% cost and negative compounding. So I don't, that, that's just my initial well, inclination. Wait, it's so, interesting. Okay. But, but tell me if I read this right. Cause I've never used like af, after pay 
um, or in a firm. But as I understand it, they'll let me do whatever they kind of think my credit limit might be. And then if I don't pay them after some period, they almost like lock my account. Yep. Right. Is yep. that okay? Yep. Yep. That's right. So, I mean, I don't, in what world? So I'm incredibly old school and conservative. I think you should have the money. Like if you want the $2,000 Peloton, I think you should have $2,000 in your account. But if you don't have that approach, it seems like Afterpay is a lot better than putting it on a credit card in almost every way because it might cost – the cost to me is completely hidden, Dougals. I'm not claiming there's not a cost to me, but it's completely hidden. So Peloton knows that they could probably sell 20% more product or 20% more goods with some sort of financing option than they could without. That's typically how yep. the equation Makes breaks sense. down. Yep. So it's a win for them because they're playing, I don't know, 3 to 5%, I'm guessing here, to the firms of the world, and they're getting 20% more sales. Like, it's a win for them. It seems like it's a win for the firm or Afterpay because it's a pretty simple business model that you make a decent chunk of change off, and you're not... Uh, I don't think you're taking people to small claims court. Like, I don't think the administration costs are anywhere near what it would be for Chase as it relates to credit cards. I could be wrong. So I don't, this is the wrong terminology. It sounds like it might be a win, win, win or improvement. It certainly sounds that way. It, it, uh, and we need to dive in and let's come back and, you know, talk about it again. To me, it's, it's, it's a shifting of incentives. If you take the one, like an example of one item. I would say I fully agree with you, but what are you incentivized to do when something is free? Volume goes up, right? And so if you take the individual that says, I want to get a Peloton and it's $2,000 and they responsible individual and says, I have $2,000 today, but wait, I can pay over three years and it's free. I'm going to do that option, right? And that is the, yeah. that, that is the responsible choice. And then you go and you get item number two. And item number two, you go, yeah, I have the $5,000, but I'm going to pay that over time. And then in three years, you now have, I don't know, $700 in monthly payments, right, that you have. And maybe you no longer have that $5,000, $2,000. You got a car payment that you didn't even realize you were getting. Exactly. And maybe now you've like, you've lost your job, but you have all these payments. But back then you could have bought them. And then you would have known what your balance sheet was in a more, in an easier fashion. That That's the circumstance that, I, and I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I actually think that these services are are great from everything that I've seen. I'm just, I'm mainly, I want to research it because I'm, because the incentive changes, just like with a Robin Hood, like volume will inevitably go up and there are consequences of that. And I, and I think that the, what I've read from like, uh, from Max Levchin on a firm when he was starting it, and where I think Dorsey's heart actually comes from and the reason that they're buying Afterpay, I think it's from a good place, but there are just these unintended consequences that can pop out, which I'm sure that they are thinking about. But that, that's what I'm curious to like, just read more about some of that stuff and we'll see. That's very well said. I think all these services come from a good place and it's an improvement, but you're still effectively creating a service to provide a financing solution that leads to buying more goods or selling more product to expedite that you know you're helping peloton sell more product and so it's hard to just put it under the umbrella of like this is good for humanity because i think what's good for humanity not good for the economy or good for 
the stock necessarily is for people to have cash to buy what they want to buy because then you you don't get into a debt cycle of any kind this debt cycle is probably a better debt cycle than a credit card debt cycle but it's still kind of a debt cycle it's a debt cycle yeah so yeah let's read more and talk about it it's interesting and we don't like i think over time this is going to play out over time it'll be a fascinating conversation that's yeah that's good i appreciate your perspective there um i i'm gonna read some for sure all right i think it's it's time for people to go rate and review the podcast yes please rate and review on apple podcasts that helps uh more listeners find us and uh you can follow us on twitter at skippy doogles and skippy doogles at gmail.com peace